Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I've, uh, the octave of my voice has fallen significantly over the last couple of days, and my wife is enjoying my uh, masculine sensibilities now. So, uh, uh, thank you. I'm, I'm Terry Mitchell. Scott Feldman is, is a friend of mine and invited me to come and speak and uh, just have recently talked, talked to Bob and I'm looking forward to this time today being with you. I, I thought I'd throw out some little bit of background uh, family, what I, some of the stuff I've done, kind of my anti-terrorist badge of uh, credentials that uh, will go with it. I'm uh, uh, 65 years old. I've been married 43 years. Uh, my wife and I have uh, two beautiful children, and uh, my son, who is a, a Marine captain, and his wife, who keep living overseas their entire marriage, uh, they produce the two most beautiful grandchildren in the world, except we rarely get to touch them. We are Skype grandparents, and uh, it, so we have these flash-by kids who run across the sc Skype screen and that. But my daughter, who recently married two years ago, lives in Chattanooga, and she's expects, expecting her first child and our first nearby grand, grandson, whose name already is River Thomas Hendricks. So we, we have, have names. Uh, I was born again when I was 18 years old. I had a, at a Jesus rally in a place called Defuniac Springs, Florida, uh, I was listening to testimonies of uh, people from our local junior college uh, speaking about Christ. And uh, I found myself in an argument with God that I was not so bad. I was not so bad. But I was also shaking. I couldn't, couldn't stop shaking. And uh, when I finally lost all the arguments that I was presenting that I wasn't so bad, uh, I yielded to this inner voice uh, of God that was going on in me. And I gave my life, what I, I discovered I did, I, I surrendered to God and gave my life to Christ. And, uh, and then shortly thereafter had a sense of calling uh, about me. Uh, that led me into 20 years of being a, a pastor in a house church. So I had a bivocational ministry in education, and I spent 20 years uh, church planning, pastoring, uh, working with house church, little houses, house churches. And uh, I had this deep yearning in me to always go overseas and be a missionary. I was a military brat, the son of a military brat, and uh, I had lived in four countries by the time I was 17. Uh, I lived in, in several places in the United States, and uh, I just felt this, I felt like I was naturally equipped to be a missionary, but uh, I never really got to go on the long-term trip. I would get these little tastes and go for a week and a, two weeks or something, but it was never satisfying, and uh, I... I, I but I also got opportunities through my education background. And that's one of the uh, 
the lights of open door, getting through open doors using uh, the, the skills that we naturally have through our, our labors to be able to get into countries that need this. So I, I was an uh, uh, English teacher and educator and got into uh, China back in 86 when Americans were rare in China. Uh, got into Afghanistan twice. Uh, once you, through the United Nations invited me in a, as a part of a team to go in and work with presidents and deans. And, uh, and then was there in 2003 when we started bombing Iraq. So Kabul, Afghanistan, with us bombing Iraq was rather entertaining. And it's very comforting when French troops are assigned to guard you. And so... <laughs> Uh, so we uh, uh, had some very wonderful experiences as tasting mission-type life. And uh, in part of my journey and what we'll unpack to today and what we'll see today about temptation and anxiety is that uh, I did get to go to Poland uh, in 93, 94, to, to be a missionary, and my plan was to be, begin my long-term missionary career. And after 10 months, uh, I returned to the States feeling uh, a failed and broken missionary. So my, dream of long, my dreams were shattered. My dreams of a long, being a long-term missionary uh, were broken. One of the things that happened is I began to drink, and uh, uh, I was in pain, uh, emotional pain, mental pain, physical pain of the losses that I had experienced and began to drink. I wasn't a nice guy to be around. And, and then during that period of time, I had a lot of rage. And that affected both my son in particular, uh, my daughter who, did, who caught less of my anger and rage, and my wife in particular who caught m- most of my anger and rage. I'm uh, in awe of my wife's love for me that she would stay with me. I I really was not a nice guy, and yet I was uh, actively involved in church, and uh, I I was at at that time I was a professor of English at Troy University, and uh, and although I had been a believer for by this time. Uh, close to 25 years, I was lost. And uh, lost in the sense of who I was. I didn't really know my identity. I was living kind of a false self. I had a head knowledge about God. I lacked a relational depth of uh, understanding and feeling and knowing his love for me. And and so in my journey, and and this, this issue, this place of temptation and anxiety that we'll talk about today, came, came about coming out of uh, years of brokenness and healing. I, w- I went to anger management classes I, <laughs> where they put me in a room, gave me a wiffle ball bat, gave me a chair like this, and then tried to make me mad. They called me names. They did s- stuff like that. And I first got in there and I, I tapped the chair with a wiffle ball bat. And they called me ugly names, and then I found some rage that was within me. And I, I, over the course of several months, 
bats. I, I destroyed a number of wiffle ball bats. It is possible to actually break and destroy a wiffle ball bat. Uh, so uh, the, the stuff of my own denials, I was denying that I was angry. <laughs> the wiffle ball bats were proof that I, I was. And uh, I began a long journey of healing and uh, really restoration and coming to a sense of who I was in Christ. But looking and under, coming to an understanding of my identity as being a beloved favorite son of God. I spent most of my Christian life, I was, I was legitimately born again. I had ministered for years. Uh, I had uh, a real powerful capacity for uh, apologetics. I was in jail ministry. I enjoyed gauging, engaging people. I enjoyed aspects of evangelism. But on the inside, I really was a servant hoping that God would one day embrace me as his son, let me feel his love for me, and hear some sort of well done for all the labors that I had done for him in my journey. So uh, this, is the back, this is my background that I'm bringing to you today. These are my credentials. Uh, uh, drinker, angry, but healed. I haven't remained in that place, and uh, so uh, when I tell people that I, uh, in my practice, I'm a counselor, and part of the wounds and scars that I got through this on my own journey, I, I can relate to people who, who have problems with temptations, addictions, uh, brokenness, anger, uh, and uh, so God is using it to his glory. And ultimately, all the pieces of my life have come together, and I'm doing what I really am, was designed by God to do, and I'm delighting in what I'm doing, ministering one-on-one with people every single day. It's a, it's a rich delight. Well, let me get a sip of water, and we'll jump into the, uh, to, to the outline that I have for us. Oh, I have electric ears, and sometimes I don't hear well, so if, if you'll speak loudly for me. When I went to Anger Man, they didn't give me a wiffle ball. It did. They gave you a bat? They didn't give me a bat. Um, they call you names? No, they didn't call me names. They knew better than that. <laughs> <laughs> what were you so angry about? Well, that's, that's what uh, I'd like to point out. Uh, I think... Uh, but my anger wa was uh, brought out through my fear. I was really uh, afraid. You, you, if you would have asked me back then, what is, what is your fear? I go, I'm not afraid. I mean, I'm a military brat, the son of a military brat. My father was an officer, but he, he spanked me so much. When, uh, when a high school teacher once spanked me, I was like, is that all you got? I mean, uh, so I was more afraid and what I initially thought was anger was the source of my challenge, realized anger was a symptom of something much deeper within me. And so uh, part of it is what we'll look at today is the anxiety that we all carry and that God wants to banish from us. 
So that, that was for me. And I'll walk around tables. We're going to have some activities, adult ed activities, and uh, I'd like to hear from you as, as I walk around what, what happens with you as we do these activities. Uh, so in my introduction, purpose is uh, looking, taking a look at what is our core identity, which I have as the beloved, well-pleasing son or daughter, and then aspects of the pose or the false self, which I will not go into much detail about today, and, and I'll talk to Bob afterwards. I may do aspects of the false self next time I speak. It may, it may really fit, uh, give us a continuity here. But let me highlight some of the uh, definitions that uh, I have under item number two. I want to look at uh, A, B, and, uh, and D. So, um, and you can look at the, the other definitions as, as you wish. Temptation. Jesus, Jesus speaks to us, lead me not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And, and when you put that word temptation in that short statement, we know it's a big deal, but we don't know how big of a deal it is. We don't know what temptation does to us. If we yield to temptation, uh, it is devastating. There is, we are not the men that God created us, created us to be when we yield to temptation. So my definition of temptation is it creates an anxiety to where we attempt to manage or control our own lives and destinies apart from God. So we, we in our own strength and power, we manage uh, uh, our circumstances and situations to when we feel the, the fear, the anxiety come up within us and we try to control through our own means. Uh, responding or yielding to temptation is an act of pride and creates a false self. And I'll, I'll give some examples uh, about that as we look at the temptation of the woman in the garden and then the attempt, to, well, it was a legitimate temptation of Jesus uh, in the desert. Let me give, the, and we're going to stay with this definition of anxiety. Uh, as, I, as I looked at the aspects of my anger, I also was, and began to realize there was something deeper about my anger. I, I, I began to look around for this, and I came across, I, I, I was a philosophy major, and, and so I, I did a lot of reading in existentialism. There was a guy that I really liked by the name of Rollo May, who was an existential psychoanalyst. And his definition of anxiety is the one that I embraced, which started me on coming up with this anxiety cycle that I have. But he, he writes, and I, I've modified it just slightly from his language, anxiety is an apprehension. It's kind of a, an apprehension is the right word. Apprehension being uh, from frustration, irritation, that can be an aspect of apprehension, to panic attacks. So anxiety is an apprehension that is triggered by a threat of loss to our core identity, uh, often by way of our core values and deep desires that we deem essential to our personality. 
So there are things that we hold essential to us. Whether, whether they are good for us or not, if we hold them essential to our personality, uh, these things can be, when they're threatened with loss, can create an anxiety within us. They create a fear within us. Uh, when my wife says to me, why didn't you put up your shoes? <laughs> that will create an anxiety. I, it's not just the first time she said, put up your shoes. So uh, we have these anxieties and things that run around that are humming in our background that I contend uh, came from the fall. That the, one of the great gifts, and I, I use that uh, in the next line, anxiety, fear is one of the primary gifts of the fall, that the thing that was introduced by the fall was fear, was anxiety. We'll take a look at, at that. Uh, core identity is our God-given foundational identity that we all possess. And the, the best example of it is when Jesus is being baptized in the River Jordan uh, the Spirit of God descends upon him like a dove, and he hears a voice. And if we look across the, the Gospels in this, we see that at that event, some heard thunder. Some, uh, John the Baptist heard the voice. Jesus heard the voice. Other heard thing. And some people standing around heard absolutely nothing. But John the Baptist had been told, when you see the Holy Spirit descend as a dove upon this man, this will be the Messiah. So we have a, a, a coming down of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus, alighting on Jesus, and this voice that says, this is my son, my beloved son, in whom my heart is well pleased. And so I think that God is not only expressing a call for Jesus, but he's expressing a call that comes out of Jesus' own identity, that he is the beloved, delightful, favorite son of God. Well, that too is who we are because that's who the man and the woman in the garden were. They were God's son and daughter, beloved son and daughter, well-pleasing, delightful son and daughter. So part of our Christian journey is the, how do we hold on to being the sons, the beloved sons, uh, the, the delightful sons? And, as I've gotten older, uh, I've come to realize, I think the journey is that we would become the beloved. That when it's all said and done, we are the beloved of God. And that our witness as Christians is that we love God and love people. We are the beloved. Uh, I'll let you look at, as, as I make comment, I have, uh, uh, let me talk about false self for just a second. False self is the controlling person we create or a mask we wear apart from God to avoid the anxieties and the pains of life. So when I mention false self in the cycle, this is the person who cannot worship God other than humbling ourselves through a form of repentance. And, and but uh, my, my own life may not be, have been yours. I realized for a long time I was living kind of falsely before the Lord. So in my periods of anger, my periods of drinking, trying to satisfy or 
quench the pain that was going on inside of me uh, just left me in a state of uh, how, how do I just look. So I go to work and look good and come home and yell at my wife. Uh, some, something's wrong there. Uh, I'm going to hold off questions What what I because I'm going to give you an opportunity to develop questions, think about what you're hearing, and then talk with a partner at your table. And then uh, I'll have a question and answer time at the end of our, our session. In part because, again, with my hearing loss, uh, it's hard to hear your questions. And unless I get an interpreter, maybe I'll stand up and let you be my ears and then... Uh, so if I, let me show the uh, temptation si- cycle that you have as a graphic on, on the paper. Uh, so I'm going to point, my finger's going to go to that circle that says pain, anxiety. Say, so the definition of anxiety is anxiety is an apprehension, a form of pain that is triggered by a threat of loss, that loss coming on the other side of it. It can be an actual loss or a threat of loss to our core identity, core values, and deep desires. It's an apprehension, a pain, triggered by a threat of loss to deep desires, core values, and core identity. And if you think about the times when you become afraid, or, or if you want to run it backwards through, through, in the United States we allow the expressions of anger. And if if you listen to any political commentary on either side of things, one of the keynotes of the political commentary is anger. Well, they're angry, I would say, because they're afraid. They perceive that they're going to lose something that they deem essential to their personality, their core values, their identity, uh, whether it's an identity that they've adopted in Christ or whether it is uh, their own identity through who they are in the political system and political world. But it creates an anxiety that takes place. Then what happens is from that place of anxiety, none of us like fear. Or I've not met anybody who enjoys fear. But from that place of anxiety, we often move into a form of a protective strategy, which ranges from fighting to fleeing. It has the whole range across there. Uh, In my own example, my, my favorite protective strategy is withdrawal until you back me into a corner. And... And then I, I will come out fighting. I, that's where the anger outbursts would come. So if I couldn't escape, if I couldn't withdraw, if I couldn't back up and hide myself, then I would, uh, I would attack. And uh, I, 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 uh, in, my, in my anger stage, I did back a department chair up against the wall when he threatened me. Here I am, a 40, late 40s English professor, and I, my department chair threatened me with something, and I just went at him, and apparently the look in my face and, 
And I, I, was, I wanted to hurt him. That's all that was going on within me. And it pushed him up against the wall and said, don't threaten me again. And he left me alone for a while. But it wasn't godly or righteous going on, stuff going on within me. So, anxiety is a threat of loss to deep desires, core values, core identity. We don't want to feel the pain of the anxiety, so we move into a place of a protective strategy. Most of these strategies we learn as children, and we simply refine them as we get older. And they don't vary much. The, if, if you recall back to childhood, there was probably a time when some authority spoke to you or something went on, and you withdrew, or you fought back, or you did something, so you are repeating that pattern of protective strategy, except uh, you've refined it. As you get older, you get more sophisticated in the way that you do the uh, protective strategy. Again, for those of us who are married, we would see our protective strategy most at home. In our marriages, marriages are supposed to be a safe place where they're secure, and we are more ourselves in that place of the home than we are at, at work or anyplace else. So as you consider your own protective strategies, what do you do when your wife nags you? And that probably will be your favorite protective strategy. But what it leads us to is a false self. We are not true to ourselves or true to God in who we are. We, we are living falsely before the Lord. One of the characteristics of the false self is the false self cannot worship God other than saying, God have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. Okay, now we move into an activity and that I need for you to do and then from that, we, we may take a question or two if I have a good interpreter up up front. Uh, look at item number four, and this will set us up to what questions do you have. Obviously, what I've said will stir some questions within you, but uh, what questions have stirred or insights uh, noted thus far? Have you seen thus far? So if you'll take a few moments on a, uh, uh, underneath either the graphic or uh, on, on the back of page of the graphic, if you'll write down some of the questions that you realize He's saying some things either that I've heard or haven't heard before, and it's created some questions in me. So what questions have you seen or what insights do you have from what I've said thus far? And then this uh, B, uh, about what from the introduction or the definitions are you feeling pushback? So what I expect in a room like this, some of you are going, yeah, that's right, and you're nodding your heads, and others are going, I'm not so sure about this. So I want you to pay attention to your pushbacks as well as your acceptance. So if you have any pushbacks or acceptance, try to note and put into language that. We'll take about five minutes to do this. And uh, in, a, in a moment, then we'll, uh, as you write down your questions or insights, then we'll take time at the table for you to talk about it. Who needs, who needs a little, uh, just a minute more to finish your talking in the group?
Okay, uh, let's take just a minute. All right, let me uh, pull our attention back. Scripture in Genesis uh, reads something to the effect that the serpent was more crafty, more cunning than any of the beasts in the garden. He came up to the woman and said, Did God really say, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? It's fascinating in that question. There, it, it is loaded with accusation. Did God really say you cannot eat from any tree in the garden? Did you really hear from God? The, uh, does God really talk to you? And are you clear in what, what you hear? Is, what is he withholding from you by keeping you from eating this tree in the garden? This is one of the patterns of temptation that the enemy is trying to create a place of apprehension, a place of pain and anxiety, that we would see that there's something not right. There is a loss that I'm expecting. So even the first question is framing uh, the anticipation of loss. The woman says to, to the serpent, we can eat from any tree in the garden. Uh, except one. We're not to eat from that tree, neither are we supposed to touch it. We, we know from the Genesis record that uh, God spoke to Adam that he wasn't supposed to eat from the tree in the garden, and that was before the woman had come into being. So Adam's communication, the husband's communication to the wife, was a little faulty. He added a stress in there, uh, you're not supposed to eat it, or don't even touch that tree, uh, because you will surely die. And so the woman said that, we can't eat or touch the tree or we'll die. The serpent said, ah, no, nah, you're not going to die. God is withholding something from you. It's called the knowledge of good and evil. And if you had that knowledge, you would be like God, knowing good and evil. And she's aware. She, she, is, she has a loss. She doesn't know good and evil. All she knows is good. That's all she knows. Most of, I, I, remember, I recall as I, I pondered this, I realized that I assume the woman is already tainted with sin before she's tempted. But she's not. She has a pure heart. She has a, a purer spirit. She has a purer soul and so th this question create, but this question still creates a, ten a tension and, a, and an anxiety within her. That God is holding out on me. There's something missing from my life that He has that I don't have, and I want to be like God. So what's wrong with me taking of the fruit of this tree? So she looks at the tree, says the the fruit of the tree did indeed have the power to make one wise, knowing the not having both the knowledge of good and evil. She looked at the fruit. It looked good. 
she took and she ate. And we then begin to see how the protective strategy was developed. She gave the fruit to the man who was standing next to her. And the first thing that they saw was they were naked. They saw for the first time that there was something wrong with them. There was something frail. There was something unattractive. They were beginning to get the knowledge of evil. If you've, uh, as an English professor, I've read Paradise Lost, and one of the, as Milton develops the character of the woman, after she has eaten the fruit, uh, he even has her plotting uh, Adam's murder because uh, God could replace the woman. Before Adam eats, God could replace the woman, put another woman. And so we see, begin to see jealousy and murder coming out in the heart of the woman through Milton's Paradise Lost. So both of them begin to see that they are naked. Now, when they, when they got, when they, uh, when man and woman joined together, the scripture says at the end of Genesis 2 that they were naked and not ashamed. And all of us, no, I won't go there. Uh, but what's missing in the Genesis 3 passage is that they are naked and there's a big blank. It's almost that they are ashamed because it's missing and they go and hide themselves. And this is part of the protective strategy. Out of the pain of our own nakedness, looking at the threat of loss, we withdraw We hide ourselves so that our shame will not be seen or noticed. Our nakedness will not be seen. Our frailties will not be seen. So, the enemy provided a threat of loss. God is withholding from you. This is where the temptation is powerful. The woman... The woman's core identity was already the beloved, well-pleasing daughter of God. She was already, already that. But her deep desire was to be more like God. How many of you would like to be more like Jesus? Show of hands. I, I don't know any Christian who would, not be, would love to be more conformed into the image of Jesus. So that desire within us is a good desire... But when it's threatened with loss, we have an apprehension. They take and eat the fruit as the protective strategy, and now they become false. They, they have lost their identity, and they now have to live. They make themselves fig leaves to cover up, and then God has to make sacrifice to put uh, skins on them. And in his mercy, he drives them from the garden. Uh, primarily so that they would not eat from the tree of life and permanently put themselves in a place of a false self, false being. There are obviously points of questions here, but so let me move you into my questions on the second page. Let's take about... 10 minutes to do these, uh, do not answer every question. Look at the questions and find one or two that, oh, I think I'd like to answer this question and do that. And once you have finished one or two questions, turn to a partner and discuss what you've 
written, done to answer those questions. About a minute to wrap it up, and then I'll uh, bring us back, but begin to wind up your questions and comments. I'd uh, like to uh, share a passage out of Hebrews. Uh, it's a passage that reminds us of the humanity of Jesus and uh, that temptation, when Jesus went through the temptation in the desert, uh, it was a real deal temptation. Uh, Jesus didn't have some special uh, mojo, some something special about his divinity other than the Holy Spirit living inside of him as the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. But he was fully human at the point of temptation. And I think as he walked in this life on earth, he was fully human and fully God. But in the same way that we have the capacity to express the fullness of God as we see in Ephesians, when we can know the height, the depth, the width, and the breadth of the love of God, even though we, what we know is beyond knowledge, and so attain to the fullness of God himself. So Jesus, walking in this life, was doing that. He was being loved by God. He was experiencing the fullness of that love. And then he is entering into the fullness of God himself, although He's part of the Godhead, but in this world, he was not. Uh, but I want to highlight his humanity with this passage. Uh, the writer of Hebrews is looking back in Hebrews 4, uh, verse 14, and says, Since therefore we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to the faith we profess. For ours is not a high priest unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, because of his likeness to us, has been tested, one other versions read tempted, in every way that we are tempted, only without sin. Therefore, let us boldly approach the throne of our gracious God, where we may receive mercy and in his grace find timely help. So the, this Jesus in the temptation himself uh, is, uh, the, it has to happen, and I've wondered, it had to happen at the beginning of his ministry. If he fails the temptation, we're moving to plan C. I mean, that, that's how important going through this temptation was. In our own lives, going through well, going through a temptation well has big ramifications. Surrendering to the temptation also has big ramifications. So... Jesus experiences what you and I would experience under that particular powerful temptation. There are three aspects to the temptation. 
The first aspect is a temptation to satisfy the hungers of the body. Second temptation is a temptation uh, to satisfy the hungers of our needs and yearnings for significance. The third temptation is a temptation about our securities, that we hunger and need security, and uh, we can be tempted in, in the places of our security. So we know from Scripture uh, that Jesus is baptized in the Jordan. Holy Spirit descends upon him. The voice calls out, this is my son, my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. Uh, he hangs around the Jordan for a few days. We know that because he has uh, uh, lunch one afternoon with James and Nathaniel and Philip. I, I think it's all in, in John. And... Uh, so th- there's some lingering around the, the Jordan, and although the Scripture itself says he was immediately driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. So he, he is put in the place that the woman experienced in the garden. Uh, so Jesus fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, when I was teaching at the university, I was a director of an English as a Second Language program, and I created it and developed it for the university as a recruiting tool. And we had a number of Muslim students who, who were in. In fact, I went to Istanbul to recruit students to come to, to Troy University. And so as Muslims, they have this event called Ramadan, which is a 30-day fast. And it's a... It's, it's a it's very harsh on the body because you cannot eat food or drink liquids. And so from sunrise to sunset, you can't do that. So, but what they do at sunset is they gorge themselves and with a lot of salty food and wake up the next morning and try to uh, go through the day. With, but this, the amounts of salt have uh, dried them out. So I embarked with them on the, the fast, but I did it uh, just as a liquid fast. I was taking broth, and I decided to go 40 days. So I thought, all right, let's see, I'll out-Muslim the Muslims here uh, with this as, a, as an evangelist. So they knew I was fasting with them for Ramadan. So I'd have Muslims come in, and how you doing, what are you doing, and they, they were, kept inviting me to come to break the fast with them, and I, I said, no, I'm, I, I'm going on. And then when they came to the end of the fast, they asked, did you break your fast? I said, no, I'm going to go on another 10 days. No, it's not healthy. You should not do that. Uh, so I went another 10 days. At the end of that 40 days, I was hungry. Broth for 40 days, hunger. I was tired. There was not much energy left in me. I go, why did I fast this long? <laughs> uh, so so I, I've experienced what the 40-day hunger is like. And I don't know, I don't think Jesus was drinking broth. I think he was probably just drinking water. Make you really hungry. Uh, did you know that water, after about 10 days of fasting, has marvelous taste to it? All the stuff that we have in our bodies that are water tastes marvelous. And you can, the flavors come out of, uh, of even broth. Uh, 
So he's, he's, he's famished, he's exhausted, he is hungry. And I've always observed this passage as kind of like the serpent in the garden. The devil comes walking up to Jesus and said, if you're really the son of God, turn those stones into bread. That's the way I've always seen it. Then I realize, how are, how are you and I tempted? The devil doesn't saunter up to you, speak to you. You're sitting there starving. You're staring at a stone and this voice comes in your head. If you're really the son of God, turn those stones into bread. That is more daunting. And it changes the image of the temptation. And it makes it personal for us. If you're really the son of God, the accusation in that is powerful. And he's saying, if you're the son of God, prove it. Turn those stones into bread. We'll see if you're the son of God. But, but what Jesus does is he holds on to the fact that, that the father has said to him, you are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. So when he, he is threatened with loss, he's hungry, he desires to eat. He hears the question in that loss, if you're really the son of God, turn the stones and bread. Jesus has to feel the same apprehension that you and I would feel at that time. He would have to. Otherwise, it's not a legitimate temptation. And we can, we can, we can express to God, listen, he had something special that we don't have. So he was able to breeze through the temptation and, uh, and then how can you judge me for my sin if Jesus is able to breeze through the temptation? He didn't breeze through the temptation. He felt the pressure and the apprehension, the pain. And I think he felt anxiety for that place. And, and the protective strategy that the enemy offered him was turn the stones into bread. What Jesus does uh, is this. He takes the point of apprehension, the point of pain, the place of anxiety, and he worships. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He understands he is hungry and he is needy of food. But, and so he doesn't deny that he has need. He recognizes his need, but man doesn't live by this bread alone, but by every word that comes out of God's mouth. He worships. Jesus worships. And that's the place of breaking the cycle of anxiety and temptation. That we take the cue that we have, the anxiety that we feel when we are tempted, and we begin to worship. I would, I would uh, argue that Jesus is... Uh, Jesus is, is, is not debating the devil. I know it says he said, he said. And in Luke, it seems that Jesus has, is producing an apologetic uh, to take on the devil. He's trying to argue against the devil. Uh, but I don't see that. Uh, I just, I think he is, he is tempted. He's not debating the devil. He is quoting scripture which I think is important to have within us. But I, I have scripture like, help Jesus. I need help. That's worship. 
God, I, I don't go so far as accusing God, don't you care that we might drown? I mean, don't you care, Lord? I mean, that's worship. It's turning and looking at the condition where we find ourselves and turning to God with the issues that we have. Next, so the hungers of the body, Jesus is, is fully hit with that. Temple, devil takes him up to the pinnacle or, or in, in his imagination or in the actual reality of it. He takes him up to a pinnacle of a temple. Throw yourself off. We know that the angels uh, will watch over you and catch you lest, you're, lest you dash your feet against the stone. Jesus says, Tim, not the Lord, you're gone. Again, centering prayer. The issue of significance, if, you, if, if the crowds below see the angels catch you, your ministry is going to be awesome. I mean, you'll have people eating out of your hands. You'll have everything going for you in your ministry. Uh, and just throw yourself off the temple. Third temptation is, is about security. Uh, the, the enemy abandons if you're the son of God part of it. And just says, let's, let's do this. You change allegiance. Look at all the kingdoms of the earth and all their glory. They're yours. You just bow down and worship me. Change allegiance, that's all. Jesus says, uh, worship the Lord and him alone do I worship. And they then said, be gone, Satan. We don't know how long. We, uh, we've talked about this for about 10 minutes. I, I think the temptation went far longer than 10 minutes. Could have gone for days. But Jesus broke the cycle of becoming a false self. He would have been... He was already the son of God. His core identity was the son. He didn't buy into the protective strategy of turning stones into bread, throwing himself off the temple, uh, changing allegiance for, for security. And he didn't become a false self. He maintained and became, remained true to who he was. We come to the, end of, we come to the beginning of John 17, which is uh, Jesus, what we call Jesus' priestly prayer. And he said, uh, Lord, it's time for you to glorify me because I've glorified you on the earth. I've completed the work that you gave me to do. Now, I know that Jesus, Scripture says that Jesus did many, many works. And I think it's in John's gospel. He said, the Bible, the books cannot contain the number of good works that, that Jesus did. So what is this work? It would make sense if I've completed all the works that you gave me to do. I, uh, I contend that the work was that he remained faithful to God, being the beloved, delightful, favorite son. He never abandoned what Adam and Eve abandoned. He remained true to who God called him and declared him to be. That was the work he did. He did a lot of things that were valuable and important. But I think the one work was that he remained the beloved son. Uh, choose one question that you find attractive, or three, but choose one question. Uh, take a few moments to write this down, and we'll take, uh, take about five minutes for that, and then 
I will wrap up with a passage out of 1 John. Instead of uh, hitting you with another scripture, although I think the passage is important, uh, there's also a place of overload. And, uh, And so you can look at the first John passage and answer some of the questions yourselves. But I'd like to give you an opportunity to ask questions that perhaps you have that you haven't answered at the table or uh, something, and I'll try to respond to those in the next eight minutes. I think you all at 710, you go into praying for one another, which is awesome. Yeah, Dennis has a mic if you have a question. That helps me here. And uh, Hi. Um, first time here. I'm Jeff, if you don't know me. Nice to see you, at least, if not meet you all. Uh, a couple of times in your notes you refer to, um, you know, the role of worship and centering prayer, and from the diagram, you know, it, it's clear that worship is the way out. Could you maybe talk a little bit more about the role that that plays? Centering prayer is an old form of prayer, and uh, it uh, basically uh, comes to a play. The purpose of the prayer is to ground ourselves in in the circumstances where we are and who we are, and then uh, turn ourselves to God in the midst of that challenge. Uh, So typically, it... It's a short prayer, such as help. I mean, it can be that, that easy. Uh, but a, a typical aspect of the prayer, uh, one of the features of the prayer can be a thing called a breath prayer, which, uh, for example, Yahweh, Yahweh. You, it's a form of breathing in and out slowly. It's calling upon the name of the Lord. Uh, uh, oh, God of my praise, do not be silent. Uh, you are my hiding place in time of trouble. A lot of the Psalms have characteristics of centering prayer, but it's a very brief, short prayer for the purpose of grounding yourself in the pow- under the pow- when you are under the power of temptation to ground yourself in who you are, and instead of succumbing to the temptation, you move to a place of worship. Is that... You told in the beginning that um, no one likes to fear. Say it one more time for me. No one likes fear. Yes, no one likes right? it. Right? In the beginning? Yes. Still, the Bible say that God commands us to fear him. Yes, okay, so very good. Wh- what is fear? My question would be, okay. if you could break it down. Uh, that form of fear, it is, there is a place where there's a legitimate terror of the Lord. So the, to fear him, realizing that God can unmake me in a moment, uh, that's a fearful aspect of it. And it is a convicting type of fear rather than uh, uh, the anxiety that hangs and stays on the inside of us. So I would agree that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and so realizing that God is so much more than we are and, and 
while I think there's incredible grace in, in Christ, there is a... Uh, we just can't keep thumbing our noses at some of the things that God speaks to our hearts and our lives. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So I think that type of fear is more of the reverential and realizing God is pretty big and can do some things. The distinction between anxiety and just regular fear, regular fear has an ob- always an object outside of us. So for example, if a cobra came wiggling down the, the, this alleyway, those of you who love snakes would go, oh, a cobra. And you go pick it up and carry it around and show it to the rest of us. The rest of us would be out of the room or find, pulling out our, and uh, there'd be a dead snake. But once the snake's gone, we don't feel the fear. What anxiety is, is a residing internal uh, fear that hangs with us. So if you go, if we kill the snake and you go to bed, you go to go to bed and you look, start looking under your bed for snakes and you do that for weeks, and then you begin to have panic attacks about snakes, that is now an anxiety that went from place of being fear to anxiety. Thank you. Good question. Yeah, one of the things we were talking about at our table is, um, you know, you, your, your symptom of your anxiety was, was anger. Yes. Or even addiction with yes. alcohol. But uh, there are a lot more... Subtle symptoms. Absolutely. What, what, what are, are some of yeah. those other symptoms that, A- absolutely. that, that we need I, to put I our spice I agree with you 100%. On, you know? Yeah. Yeah, they, uh, I just chose the obvious. Uh, because we give ourselves permission in this country to be angry, uh, I, I just chose anger, but it was also part of my experience as well. But you're very correct. There are many subtle ways that... Uh, that are our protective strategies and expressions. Um, so I actually went down a different path on this one a little bit on that I got frustrated or actually jealous of God in the desert or Jesus in the desert because of two things. Jesus knew God more intimately than any of us could. And then from that, he was also God. So for those two reasons, he had perfect knowledge and 100% confidence in his father's kingdom during his temptation. I would probably say didn't have perfect knowledge coming in the flesh. I think he learned obedience through the things he suffered. So I think there's a progression of a revelation of who God, his father, is to him. That the same revelation that you and I would have. For me, the key piece is that he came without sin. He was like the man and the woman in the garden. There was no sin in him because of the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit on him. But I think he had to go, go through the same. It's, it's not like he knows in advance already. He has all-knowing understanding of what's going to happen uh, both at the crucifixion. He understands he has to die, but he doesn't necessarily know how he's going to die. He, uh, and he would like to escape that death. Uh, that we see in the garden, if you can pass this cup from me. So I would say that he is fully man without, uh, but with the same capacity that you and I have, as we have the residing Holy Spirit within us, you and I can have the same revelation and understanding 
and courage and energy to worship that Jesus had with the power of the Holy Spirit. I think I run back to that, that knowledge piece. I just I can't get past the fact that even Adam and Eve didn't wouldn't have had as much knowledge in the situation as Jesus would. Oh, uh, so they I, would. Yeah, they, yeah. I, I would agree with that. Sometimes I'm pig-headed, and uh, and I I just don't learn lessons fast, and I stumble and fumble and fail and bounce around. So, so I think I'm growing in the revelation of who I am and who Christ is for me. So I would agree with you that the pressure of that temptation uh, would be daunting. And, uh, but because I have you and I and all of us in the room have access to the Holy Spirit, I think I have the potential of going through the temptation in the manner in which Jesus did. Yeah. Um, so this is part one. Terry, should he survive the week, will be back. <laughs> and so we'll see him next week. But No, no it's the uh, uh, Valentine's Day. I'll be here Valentine's Day. Yes. Yes. So two weeks. Is it two weeks? I have you next week, but is that a mistake? Uh, it. I could make next week. Yeah, let's do that so we can connect this. Okay. I just have the list from Scott. So. Yeah, yeah, okay. So here's your homework. Teach this to someone. If your wife is receptive, I'd like you to teach it to her. Teach the cycle. Take out the little chart and, um, and See if you can articulate what you have taken in. Or if your wife's not a receptive person, uh, you know, find someone else, maybe a child, maybe someone at work. But I love the heart of this, because the heart of it is, it's not enough that you're a beloved son of God. So you have to come up with other reasons to be significant <laughs> and secure. So the heart of it is, you know, just like with Eve, right? It wasn't enough that she was a beloved daughter. She, she wanted something else, which worked out so well for her. I'm going to suggest that's the same thing for us, right? So... With that as kind of a key, why don't you go teach this this week, and then I think you'll come back even with more questions next week. So um, why don't you spend some time uh, praying for each other? It's been a while since we've been together. Some of you never. So write down some of these prayer requests that you're hearing, but kind of share if there's one thing you could pray for me this week. This is what it would be, and then... Let's spend uh, a couple of minutes actually praying. But, Terry, thank you. Very You're enlightening welcome. You're morning. You're welcome. Thank you. Appreciate you all having me. Thank you very much.